because for the last four and a half years, I've been attending Celebrate Recovery, and this is my four-year coin. CR is a Christ-centered recovery and discipleship ministry which has helped millions of people experience healing in areas of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, which all of us kind of accumulate in this sinful and broken world. And uh, so I'm going to introduce, introduce myself the way all Celebrate Recovery applic- uh, re- participants do. So you should get ready to say hi, Richard, at the end, okay? Get ready. Just a little cue. Hi. I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ who struggles with codependency, which is addiction to the love and acceptance of people. I'm also walking in greater and greater victory over pride, lust, impatience, and depression. My name is Richard. Yay! You can all go to Celebrate Recovery with me. Actually, I've invited lots and lots of people. If you, like I said, if you live in this broken world, there are many ways to go through discipleship, and that's especially one of those things that helps to un- unravel the knots, especially if you've noticed spikes in your heart, you know, maybe anger or fear or depression, reactions to the world. Often those are clues to things that God wants to heal or go a little bit deeper in with you through prayer, through fellowship, and through a Christ-centered recovery program. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Debbie in a, in a, in a moment. At, at the end, she's going to do something special for us because we are from Hawaii. I didn't fly in from Hawaii, but we are originally from Hawaii. You did. Mahalo. God is aloha. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> I was going to show you just a quick picture of our daughters. Naomi and Hannah, I think we have the slides. And is it okay? I'll kind of just indicate when we switch off the slides. Uh, And I'm going to share a little bit more about uh, kind of their walks with God because their story intersects definitely with our story. Oh, Oh, no. Slide number one. Well, that's one of my daughters. That's Hannah. And that's my dad. That's not the other daughter. So... (laughs) Okay, there they are, Naomi and Hannah. And, uh, and again, we've, we've had the joy of being parents to both of them for a while and, and it just really had a chance to see God's work. And especially to be here on Father's Day is a special day. And I'll, you'll hear more about that in just a moment. Uh, but this morning, I'm glad to be called to share God's word and hope with all of you. And the title of my message is called The Power of Meekness. And it's taken from one verse. Okay, do we have slide number two? Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you. And it's taken from Matthew chapter five, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, now, if you know what meek is, you understand that that's a compliment. That's really a great thing. But sometimes we get caught up in the world's definition of meekness, which uh, I took the Cambridge Dictionary definition. And if you go to the slide with, uh, with the the graphic on it? Yes, there. That picture was not in the dictionary, but uh, I added that in. But according to the Cambridge Dictionary that most people look at for the definition of meek, not the biblical definition, definitely, is someone who is quiet and unwilling to disagree or fight or to strongly support personal ideas and opinions. Uh, He's And they put a quote there, kind of a sentence. He's balding, meek, and hardly heroic. And then I added in, and he's always eating donuts. 
So that's the world's definition of meekness, which is some, someone who's basically a wimp. But the definition of meekness from the biblical perspective is this. It's the Greek word praus, and it can mean humble, kind, gentle. It can also mean a soothing medicine, a soft breeze, a trained animal, or strength brought under God's control. Now, that picture is not the picture of the horse I had when I was growing up. My father's from Texas, and my mom is from Tokyo, and uh, we did grow up for part of our lives in Texas, and we had a horse, a Welsh pony, which um, probably me at my height now would be, his head would be maybe a little bit taller than mine, but it's not a full-grown horse. It's a smaller horse, and when you're in elementary school, that horse is big enough, but that horse was not meek when we first got him. He really wanted to exercise his independence. He would, as soon as I would get on the saddle, he would buck me off or he would go under a tree and try to drag me off and just run off and eat whatever he wanted to eat there the rest of the day. And so my grandfather said, you know, you're going to learn how to ride this horse. Your, Your dad is from Texas. I'm from Texas. Texans learn how to ride horses. So I, I had a riding quirt, you know, just a piece of leather, and I learned. You know, he said, I want you to, to use it on the backside of the horse and make him listen to you. Make him obey you when you pull on the reins. Don't let him yank the reins out of your hands. And so I was afraid to hit the horse, and he said, well, my grandfather did his usual uh, response to me. If you don't hit the horse, I'm going to hit you. You use the riding quirt on the horse and teach him who's boss. And slowly I did. And that horse became tame useful, in the the words of the Bible, meek, power under control. So if I laid my reins just slightly across the neck, the horse would turn. If I leaned in the saddle a little bit, the horse would turn. To the point with, at at, uh, nine years old, I was able to go into a rodeo and do some acrobatics on the horse, standing up on the saddle, jumping up and down a little bit, not a lot of acrobatics. I was only I was only nine years old, but the horse obeyed me, didn't buck me off. That is the picture of meekness in Scripture. Power under control. The passage Matthew five five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, has three words I want to want to define again. We've already defined that meekness is something when, when people yield their power to God's control. But the word blessed That's at the front of that verse. The word blessed um, is repeated over and over throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. It was Jesus' inaugural address for the kingdom of God. He went up on a hillside and he began to teach. And he repeated this word, blessed are blank. You know, blessed are these, blessed are these. And he went over and over. And we're going to go into that in just a moment. But the word blessed means joy which is associated with receiving God's favor. And these are what's called the Beatitudes. The word blessed comes from the Latin word beatus, which was repeated over and over for the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible that was written back in the mid, uh, mid-centuries, you know, long, long, long ago. And the beatus or Beatitudes were the first word to help us understand these assertions that God was making, that Jesus was making about the kingdom life that he wants us all to have. And then the last phrase, inherit the earth, means to inhabit God's promised land and state or existence of abundance and peace. And it's seen especially in Psalm 37. 
and and especially that means also being inside the grace that's given through faith in Jesus. Now, I want to read Psalm 37, and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing today is about meekness and about how that's affected believers, how it's affected Jesus' followers, and how it's meant to affect us if we are yielded to his control. So Psalm 37, 7 to, 7 to 11 says this, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And again, that's the phrase that would, would have come to mind for anyone hearing Jesus speak the beatitude, the blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They would have immediately thought back to Psalm 37. It goes on, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And for again, the people who were reading this at the time, hundreds and thousands of years earlier, they would have been people without a home. They would have been people waiting to walk into the promise that God was giving to them, the promised land. And they were watching God do what he does, which is prepare us to walk into a place that is meant for us. And so in the same way that the people of Israel were waiting for the promised land, Jesus, when he stood on this mountain hundreds of years later, and he gave kind of like the new law, the new version of the Ten Commandments, except they weren't commands, they were truths that were to help us understand what we have, what we have already, that we have the land, we have the state of peace that God wants to give us if we recognize him as Messiah. So when we think about someone who is meek, I want you to think about Jesus, because in Matthew eleven twenty nine it says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle the Greek word is praus, gentle or meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The same word that's used in blessed are the meek, it, or the word praus is repeated there. And when you think about someone who is strength under God's control, I want you to think about Jesus. Think about his strength leading us. Think about his strength empowering us. So when we think about what happened right before that passage in, in Matthew 5, uh, here's the context. And always a good Bible study technique for everyone of you that are starting to learn what it means to follow God is to read the Bible in context. Like say, if you see one verse, go back half a chapter and look at what's happening before, what happens afterwards. It helps you from getting, getting all going off in wrong directions. So Matthew chapter 4, it says this, 423 to 25. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus, the meek one, 
the one who was submitted to come and live among us, was doing miraculous things. And Jesus had said at some point when he said the Holy Spirit would come, we would do even greater things than him. Now, it may or may not mean that we would heal lepers and bring back sight to the blind. It may mean healing the soul of someone who's proud or lustful or fearful or codependent. What is a greater miracle? Healing physically or healing spiritually and emotionally? God said he's going to give that same kind of power to all of us. So when Jesus was teaching this series of beatitudes or blessings, he was on this hillside looking down from the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of overlooking a couple of areas, well-known areas around the Sea of Galilee. And it looks like kind of this this picture here uh, looking down. There was a point in which Debbie and I and our daughter, we actually lived and served in Israel at, at some point. We traveled kind of this area. And this is the view that would have been happening. So these thousands and thousands of people from all around Israel are following Jesus around. And Jesus has invited individuals, disciples, to come and learn from him. And he sits down and he begins to teach them. You know, that that site actually is really interesting. Right next to that site on the Sermon on the Mount is this church. But this church that's built to kind of commemorate where the Sermon on the Mount occurred was built by none other than the dictator Mussolini, uh, the Nazi counterpart, the, the counterpart to Hitler for Italy, who killed people, was ferociously unmeek. But he built this church on the midst of the Sermon on the Mount to try to earn favor with God and with man. Kind of ironic, but God has outlasted Mussolini, I'm so, I'm so glad to say. But when that, when that sermon started and Jesus began to teach the people who were gathered around him, it was as if a laser was being fired off. Truth of God was becoming real. The truth of the kingdom was coming. The king, the kingdom, and what kingdom people were to be like. So let's read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In each of these blessings, we have to try to understand what what they mean in order. Oftentimes you will hear someone teach and say, oh, if you do these things, you will gain this thing at the end of the sentence. That is exactly opposite of what is intended. When it says on that passage, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it's saying that the word for is because you already have the kingdom of heaven. If you have Jesus, if you recognize him as the Messiah, you have the kingdom of heaven, and you grow in being blessed as someone who recognizes they need need him. You grow because you know that you need to mourn over your sin and the sin of the world because you are being comforted by God. So if we understand this is not a list of to-dos in order to get the love of God. This is a list of done and grow into something. This is the way we're meant to look at these these, uh, beatitudes. 
And each of the Beatitudes confronts a specific idol. So the poor in spirit, the next, next uh, slide there, the poor in spirit area of blessing is to confront those who are proud and self-sufficient. The mourning is meant to say that we mourn over the sin, uh, sin that's in us or the sin that's in the world, that we're confronting the idol of being calloused towards sin, being proud in our sin. Meekness is contrasted against someone who is untamed and controlling. Hungry for God is contrasted against someone who is gluttonous for pleasure. And then it goes on, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And each of those, again, is confronting a specific idol in the land. Merciful is meant to contrast against someone who is cruel and uncaring. Pure in heart is contrasted against someone who is divided and distracted. Peacemaker, someone who looks for the peace of God to be expressed in the world and in their own lives, is is confronting someone who is at war with God and God's peace. And then finally, those who are being persecuted are confronting those who are chameleons who just want to blend in. That is the list of things that Jesus called out from this mountain sermon. He meant it to give us a light about what's going to happen. So the power of meekness is the, are these two simple things, freedom and glory. Freedom means meekness unshackles us from the illusion of self-sufficiency and control. And glory, meekness radiates God's love, truth, and power. Now, that's a lot of information. I kind of wanted to go into all of that as a foundation. But you see this sermon, the sermon that Jesus gave, the greatest sermon in the world in which he declares that the kingdom is here. You have the kingdom of God offered to you through him, through a relationship with Jesus. And that as you grow in your relationship with him, you'll grow in meekness, mourning. And you'll have to face persecution. You'll have to face all these other things, but God is going to give you hope and power. My family, and this next picture shows me and my mom and dad. That's me in the center when I had more hair. I was not a meek man. Our family were not meek people. My dad was, uh, he actually ended up retiring at the end of 30 years after serving in the U.S. Army for uh, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. He ended up as a command sergeant major. Actually, he was on the list for becoming a, the command sergeant major of the Army to be brought to Washington, D.C. to be with the, the chief of staff, uh, chief of the Army. But what happened was, you know, we, we as a family, we were just very proud, very strong in our own strength. In my mom's picture, if you show that picture of her, she comes from a samurai, samurai family, uh, they met during the Korean War. My, my, my dad met, that, met my mom, and I came along a few years later. And, and uh, for her, her aggression was very different. Sometimes it would come out in a strength of temper and control. Sometimes it would be very passive. And both ways are not the way of meekness. Meekness can be both aggressive. In the, the opposite of meekness, unmeekness, can be both aggressive 
and passive instead of yielded to God. It's almost a little bit like this glove here. Imagine just trying to stand up on our own with this glove. Meekness says, yeah, there's some strength in this glove. You know, there's resilience in the materials, the leather. It has some, some, some properties of strength. But until you put God's hand into it, until, his, until you yield to his strength in it, it really doesn't fulfill the purpose it was meant to have. That's the picture, again, of meekness and what God wanted. For me and my family, you know, I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. There were no Christians in anywhere in our family except for one great-grandmother who, uh, who prayed that one day that there would be a pastor that would come out of our family. And um, she prayed for my dad and, and all of our, his siblings. You know, my dad, this was his second marriage, you know, to my mom. He had had a, another whole family of three children. He, uh, he really was very independent. He looked like John Wayne. He played for the Chicago Bears when there was no face masks before he joined the Army. Uh, pretty tough man, scary man. My mom as well. So I grew up very insecure because I, I felt like I had to perform at a certain level in order to be accepted. And I did perform at that level, you know, academically, athletically. Uh, at some point when we, w when we went to Hawaii, my dad retired as a command sergeant major of the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. Um, I was going to high school there and, and doing very well in school. I uh, ended up with uh, scholarships to Harvard, well, not scholarships, but admissions to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and actually West Point. And I did go to West Point. It was a full-ride scholarship. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is the, my life. Uh, my intention was to become a politician, a president of the United States. If you, That sounds pretty ridiculous to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I continued to believe my own press, that I was the end of it all, that I could hold myself up without God. I didn't believe in God. Anyone who believed in God was foolish. There was one Christian who I knew in high school, a guy named David, who witnessed to me, and he, he would tell me, you know, Richard, one day you're going to come to the end of yourself, and this God who you've rejected is going to reject you because you haven't received this gift he's offering to you, this love that he's offering you in Jesus. And, you know, I would just nod whenever he would tell me that and kind of, you know, laugh it off. But I respected him because he was a black belt in judo, and I was only a brown belt in karate. And so I thought, okay, I'll listen to you, David. But my friend David died two days after I gave the commencement speech at our graduation before I left for West Point. He, um, he died in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. He was coming home from his work at his mom and dad's shop, and this drunk driver hit him. The drunk driver lived, and David died instantly. I didn't even go to his funeral because I was so afraid of death. I thought, yeah, I just don't want to see his body. I don't want to see him. But his words continued to haunt me, even as I went off to West Point and then decided at some point, maybe this isn't the life I really should follow. Came back, went back to the University of Hawaii instead, started pursuing a degree in education rather than into civil engineering or military engineering. And then I married, met and married a woman in college uh, in Hawaii who was a, you know, a wonderful woman named Kelly. And we were married for a few years, and then she went back to her island, Maui, while I was finishing up my master's degree. 
And uh, within the few weeks after she was there ahead of me, she had gotten involved with her boss at the place where she was working. And by the time I arrived uh, a few months later, she told me, I don't love you anymore. And, you know, I want a divorce. And her, her uh, boss uh, decided to divorce his wife, and um, she decided to divorce me. So I found myself in an, our bedroom of the house. I was renting this four-bedroom rental, and she was back at her parents' house. And uh, I sat there on the bed with a gun, a loaded pistol, cocked it, took the f f finger off, took the safety off, put the gun to my head, and I was just putting my finger on the trigger. And then it occurred to me, one day you're going to come to the end of yourself. These words of my friend David. And it made me stop and think, if God is real, maybe I should find out before I die. So I, so I put, God. praise God. So I put the gun down. I went to a local church. I heard the gospel. And God saved my life. That was 40 years ago. God saved my life. And then the adventure of walking with him and learning and growing with him continued. It was an amazing adventure. But I was still having some of the, you know, some of the old unmeekness to kind of get rid of and go through. But God slowly worked in my life and discipled me. And then a few years later, a couple of years later, I, I was saying, God, you know, I, I'm satisfied being single if that's what, what you want me to be. I was praying for my former wife. I actually forgave her for what happened. Almost immediately, the Holy Spirit gave me that ability to forgive her and pray for her salvation. And then I met Debbie, a godly woman. She was living on another island. I was working at the community college uh, where I was at on Maui. And uh, I just thought, wow, what a wonderful woman. And we started to talk a little bit more. And I thought, well... God, is this someone who you want me to get to know better? And um, yeah, it seemed like God said yes. But what happened was, what happened was uh, we, we began to pray together. And Debbie, just because she was someone who was yielded to God, truly meek and yielding her power before God, she said, Richard, I think what we need to do is, yeah, we can continue to explore our relationship, but we need to pray for your former wife that she comes to Christ. I'll pray alongside with you. And if she does come to Jesus, um, I stand ready to stand back, step back, and let you be reconciled to your wife. But we continue to develop our relationship, and at some point I asked her to marry me, and Debbie said, okay, we're going to continue to pray for your former wife, but I'll say yes for now. We'll keep going on toward the date. And then on the day of the wedding, um, I remember, Debbie, as we were, we were signing the, uh, the marriage license, uh, Debbie, Debbie said, okay, we're no longer praying for reconciliation with your wife. <laughs> we're only praying for salvation for your wife. <laughs> and I want to tell you something, uh, this is kind of the end of that story. A number of years, maybe 25 years later, I found out that my former wife became a Christian at the same church I went to. She's now married, has two kids, and she's teaching Sunday school. So God brought her to salvation. But uh, when Debbie and I got married in 1987, and, and by the way, if you're adding up numbers, uh, we celebrate our 35th anniversary in, uh, in about, let's see, what is it, in July, so a couple more months, one more month, we celebrate our 35th anniversary. But during our first year, during our first year of marriage, you know, one of the things that we prayed for, we, we said, we felt like God was calling us into ministry in some form or other, 
And I was asking God, where, where do we go? What do we do next? And um, there was a, a time when we were we were staying in the house that she the cottage that she was renting as part of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship House, and and I know at one point I got woken up from a dead sleep with this very loud booming sound like a cannon going off in my head. And it was like this booming voice of authority, and I I dropped to the floor. I just cowered. I would just Debbie didn't wake up. Only only I heard it, but it was like I heard it in my ears. I heard it in my heart. And it was this voice of authority, and I knew it was God. And God said something to me. He said, I shall perfect my will through you. And I thought, well, what does that mean? I was just shaking. I woke up Debbie. We prayed together. I said, Debbie, what do you think this means? And she said, I believe God is saying he's going to use you and our family in a way that is very remarkable. But in the process, he's going to break through some things in your life. And that's been true. He's been working on my meekness before him, even up until this two weeks ago when I was going through a very dark season and God broke through kind of a last area that he wanted to break through of codependency. But one of the things that happened during that first year is that uh, about 10 months into our, our marriage, we found out that, that uh, Debbie was pregnant. I said, oh, my goodness, I thought we were being careful. How did this happen? <laughs> we weren't ready, and Debbie was, how old were you at the time? almost 32 and I was 29 or you were 34, 34 years old. So it was an older, you know, older mom pregnancy, but, and Debbie began to throw up on a regular basis. She was having such a tough time. Uh, But we, we prayed and said, okay, God, you know, just help me to take care of Debbie. We're kind of shocked. I had started working for a seminary, taking care of, uh, watching over their classes, taking classes for free at the same time in Hawaii. And then about uh, a few months into the pregnancy, the doctor said, you know, we're going to do an ultrasound for the baby just to see something because you look like you're a little small. And they, they looked at the size of the infant and they said, you know, this doesn't seem right for the age with the gestational age of the baby. It's rather small. So we're going to do what's called an amniocentesis, a long needle being pushed into the amniotic fluid. Into the, uh, into the abdomen and to withdraw some of the amniotic fluid to test for genetic markers for perhaps Down syndrome. So that was devastating. That was hard news to hear, but we went forward with the test. And then within a, a week or two, we got the results back. And Debbie got a call from the doctor and said, could you come into the clinic? I need to talk with you about the results. And if anybody here is a doctor, we know what that means. When you tell us to come in, it's not because you're gonna tell us good news. So she came in. I ran over from the seminary office, which was just a few blocks away from the clinic, the Kaiser Clinic in Honolulu. And we met in the elevator, went up in the elevator, sat down in the doctor's office, and the doctor said, Richard and Debbie, it's worse than we thought. We thought, what do you mean? What could be worse than Down syndrome? He said, well, it's a condition called trisomy 18. Down syndrome is a triple 21st chromosome. Trisomy 18 is a triple 18th chromosome. The chromosome is larger. It has more genetic material. And what that means is every cell in your child's body will be defective. There will be a triple chromosome in each cell. And the likelihood of life continuing for this child is rare. Most, almost every one of the children who have this condition before birth die, before they're even born. Of those who are born, 
almost all will die within the first few months after they're born. And so we receive that news. We walk back to my, my office at the seminary, made it about halfway before we broke down and cried. And then we made it to the sanctuary. And we had, we had been praying for a name for this child. We didn't know what sex the child was or anything, but we had had a name that came to us, Naomi from the Book of Ruth. But we would pronounce it Naomi because I'm half Japanese and Debbie is Okinawan Japanese. So we thought, okay, we'll pronounce it the Japanese way, Naomi, even though we don't know if it's a girl or not. And as we went back into the sanctuary of that church where the seminary office was, we prayed, God, what are we to do? What do you want us to do? And then it occurred to us that the doctor had said to us, your daughter has trisomy 18. God had known her name before we ever knew her diagnosis. Psalm 139 says, he knows us from our mother's womb. He knows the number of days that we're going to live before even one of them comes to be. And so even as we were weeping and grieving, there was an assurance from God that this was a gift. And so we said, God, as long as you give her to us, we will love her. We trust you. We humble, we meekly bow before you. We can't face, in, face this in our own strength. We face, face it only with your strength. And as the months went by, we expected Naomi not to make it through even to birth. She was very small, you know, but she was active. And I began to sing to Naomi. I'm a really bad singer, but I sang, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. I sang it into Debbie's belly button, and Naomi would kick me in the face. She had better, she had better taste in music. But on uh, January 20th, 1989, Naomi was born at a little less than three pounds. She was completely blind, completely deaf, had severe congenital uh, and developmental abnormalities. But her name, Naomi in Japanese, it's a Hebrew name, but it's also a Hawaiian and a Japanese name. Nao means to fix, heal, or repair, and me means beautiful. And we had a, a middle name, which we said was her name, we, we would name her Keiko, which means blessed child. She came out very beautiful, very fragile, very small, and yet struggling to fight and fighting to live. So we gave her the opportunity, as long as we could support her, we learned medicine that was well beyond our skill set to care for her, and she made it past that, past the birth. And what happened was a series of many, many miracles. Naomi, we, you know, we cared for her. There were times when she would code, and, and I'd have to do CPR, and I'd ride in an ambulance with her to the hospital again and sing Jesus Loves Me to her. You know, all these different things ha began to happen, but God sustained her day by day and with the love and prayers of many thousands of people in Hawaii you know, who were gathered around us and, and serving and helping us uh, care for her. She made it almost to her first birthday. And then um, this picture, I think, shows her just you know, during that first year. Oh, no, picture number 18. Sorry, I think maybe they loaded in different order, huh? Yeah. But that's what Naomi looked like. 
you know, very, very doll-like features. That's part of the effects of trisomy 18. They're, they have microcephaly, very small heads. But you know, just she was, she was a child who was so, so joyful. Even though she had so many brushes with death, she actually endured over her lifetime over 50 pneumonias. And we learned how to fight with specific protocols that we developed, some of which are used by other doctors today. But she would sing in her own language, just sing all day long and just like she was praising God all day long. And it was like she was looking and seeing something that we didn't see. And we found out that almost all these trisomy kids that live, and there are a number of them that live because abortion is recommended 100% of the time, but God uses these little babies, these little trisomy kids as prophets and evangelists wherever they are. And God began to use Naomi in the same way. It was so miraculous. It was really miraculous. This was a cop. This is what the star num- uh, slide number nineteen. This is what the front page of the Star Bulletin newspaper looked like in Christmas, nineteen eighty nine. You know, those are the same size type that they used for the Pearl Harbor bombing. You know, long long ago. And you know, and on the right there is a letter from a personal letter that Mother Teresa sent to us, because again, every time she would make a birthday. It was such big news. I mean, there are other children who have lived, but they're rare. It's like winning the lottery two or three times in a row. She, her testimony became known throughout Hawaii and then gradually around the world. And God used her to change my family. The next picture shows my dad, uh, Marine Russell Ross Jr. I'm Richard Russell Ross. I'm really glad my dad didn't name me Marine. Uh, he's, his, his constant joke was he was the only Marine in the Army. Um, but there's his pictures from Vietnam and from the, from the Chicago Bears. But during my very first sermon in 1990, my dad looked up to receive Jesus. He was a proud, very dangerous man, very resistant to God. He gave his life to the Lord in, in that very first sermon. And then my mom, who was an antagonistic Buddhist, she gradually, over time, her heart began to melt. It was really an amazing process. And then hundreds and then thousands of people became followers of Jesus. And then, you know, we began a ministry to international students on the Hawaii's campuses because, you know, my regular job with the university, I had to stop and we were, I couldn't work at the seminary anymore, but we, as long as we could operate out of our own house, we were doing campus ministry with international students who were postdoctoral students from around the world. Many of them became followers of Christ and took Jesus back to their own countries. God touched millions of people through a very yielded, simple, meek child whose strength was yielded to God's power. That's the power of meekness, the power of meekness to be able to break through areas of of shackles, to break through and give us freedom and to be able to glorify God. But in the middle of all of that, uh, slide number 21, uh, God gave us Hannah, our second daughter, two years later. And we swore it was immaculate conception because Naomi, she didn't know the difference between night and day. She would just feel our faces at nighttime. Like she would, at some point, the last feeding was around 3 a.m. And we'd have from 3 to 6, kind of a peaceful time, no medications, no procedures or therapies. And Debbie would come to bed, and I would just sleep on one side of a double bed. And for six years, Naomi lived six year, almost six years, I did not move or turn at all. I just stayed on my back through the whole night. 
and Debbie stayed on her back and Naomi would lay between us and just feel our faces sing all night long. <laughs> and so we thought, when did we make Hannah? That's definitely Immaculate Conception. <laughs> I don't know how she came around. <laughs> but you know, I, mean, I won't ca- categorize that as a real miracle, but, but you know, it's just amazing to watch. Naomi was such a gift. Uh, uh, slide number 22. She was such a gift. Uh, just a joyful, mo- the most joyful person, even, even as she faced death so many times during the course of her life. She faced it meekly in, in the strength of God, and God used her for his glory. And again, you know, ver- uh, slide 23, my dad, after he became uh, a follower of Jesus, I discipled him in his retirement. And then uh, he, you know, shared Jesus with my mom until she died in 1994. And, and uh, you know, went home to, went home to the Lord. Uh, but my dad became a pastor and served, served the Lord for 30 years in his retirement. Slide number 24. Naomi went home to the Lord in October uh, 1994, just the day after Debbie's birthday, kind of after a final pneumonia. Uh, and one of the things that we, we had prayed about, like, God, if, if it's possible, let her come home. We did the final procedures at home, final CPR, trying to help her to get through to see if she would make it or not. But she didn't. You know, we, she had, God had saved her over and over, but it was her time. Like it says in Psalm 139, God knows the number of our days. He knows. We don't have one day more, one day less. We, he knows the number of our days. And we had a service for her. And uh, slide number 25, uh, that, that is her casket. Uh, I built that a couple of years before she died. I uh, called it a hope chest. Dads, I, I like to make wooden toys. I used to make cabinetry and furniture and things just because of we didn't have money as missionaries. So, you know, we needed to make our own furniture. Uh, but I built that hope chest to hold her body at the funeral because in the old days, fathers would build a hope chest for their daughters in order to kind of give them, you know, the, the bridal gown, dishes, special gifts in order to, before they send them to the bridegroom. We, we covered Naomi with the bridal veil of, of a friend whose wedding I had done and uh, laid her on wet, wedding satin because it was like giving my final gift for her. Uh, it was very sober to build it, but it was also a privilege. And, and one of the beautiful things about it was I thought our hope is in Jesus. That's why the hope chest is a very appropriate gift. And also she was going home to the bridegroom. She wasn't going to be married on earth but she's going home to the bridegroom. And we know that scripture says that in a sense, man, woman, child, if we know Jesus, we're married to him. He's the bridegroom. We're the church. The church is called the bride. And we are are connected to him through faith. And so that was Naomi's home going. From that point on, you know, God did so many, so many things. But there's, there's a story I want to share with you from a time when, when uh, Naomi was facing a very, very serious pneumonia. She, um, like I said, had faced over 50 pneumonias in her lifetime, and we learned how to fight them very, very well. But at one particular time, she was at the Kaiser Hospital, and Debbie was at home with Hannah taking care of her. And um, I was my turn to kind of coordinate the care, stay by her side, sleep in the chair next to her bed. 
and she was in a, a in a hospital bed with a, a, a oxygen tent around her. She had a nasal cannula for oxygen, but she also had a misted oxygen tent because her pneumonia was so serious. Her lungs were crackling, kind of like cellophane. It was just, you know, when you're when you've got pneumonia, and some of you may have gone through COVID or or pneumonia during this time or lost people to that. You understand it just drowns you. You know, just the 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 virus just fills up your lungs. And so she was drowning in the pneumonia. And I I was looking at her and she was moaning and crying. And it was so hard for me because I knew what she was feeling. She was blind. And she depended on touch and smell so much. She couldn't touch or smell in any of us. And it was discouraging. And, and if you know disease, sometimes discouragement is as dangerous as disease. I knew I needed to try to encourage her somehow. So I asked the nurse, who was a Christian, is it possible for us to bring her out some for just a few moments and let me hold her? I know the oxygen tent is important for her care, but I think her discouragement is even more dangerous right now. So she said, let me figure out something. So she took two or three oxygen tubes and turned them on full blast, 15 liters. She closed the door of the room and, and taped them to my back so they would blow straight up over here. And she took Naomi out of the out of the hospital bed and she let me hold her just against my chest and I could just feel her heart beating so so fast and at this point I do want to tell you something we didn't know that the next night God would do a very obvious documented miracle which would save her life at the last moment that her heart rate would go up to 200 and something beats a minute and right before she coded God would give us a word about what to do it would confound the medical procedures being done, and it actually would save her life the next night. I had no idea that was going to happen. All I knew was my child was suffering, and she needed encouragement. So I held her against my chest, and I could feel her lungs just, you know, it just you could feel it rattling with the, the, the stuff that was growing in her lungs as they were trying to fight the, fight the, the virus. And as she was against my chest, she was holding me, and she... She rubbed my face with her hand, and she just moaned and kind of, you know, grumbled in her own way. I knew what she was saying. You know, it hurts. Papa, it hurts. Make it stop, please. And in the quiet of that room, with the nurse kind of just standing behind me, I prayed two prayers. And we have the privilege of praying to our Father in heaven. Just whatever is on our heart. He has the privilege and decision and wisdom about how to answer those prayers. But we can pour out our hearts and entrust those things to him. The first prayer was one that a dad should never really ever have to pray. And it's very poignant that I'm telling you this story on Father's Day. I asked God, if it's Naomi's time, would you take her quickly? Don't let her suffer anymore. I just wept. And again, that's not a prayer you as a dad want to ever pray for your child. And God was, you know, God was just, the room was just quiet and I just sobbed. And then I prayed the second prayer. God, if it's possible, would you trade my heart and my lungs for Naomi's, would you give her my heart and my lungs so she can breathe free, so she can be healed? Let me take it. 
And I just wept again. And in the quiet of that room, I heard kind of just here and in here, God's voice again. Not the booming, scary lion voice, but a soft voice of a father. He said, you love Naomi. And you would trade places with her. Do you know that I've already answered your prayer? I saw the world drowning and dying in sin. Just like Naomi is drowning in pneumonia. And I did give the world my heart and my lungs. I gave them my son to take the diseases of sin onto his body. That's the gospel. That's the gospel for Father's Day, for Mother's Day, for every day. That's the heart of a father who would give everything for his child. That's what God has done for us. He's given everything. He's taken our place. I understood the gospel so much better than I'd ever understood it. And if you follow Jesus and walk with him meekly, he will customize that message for you. He is pursuing you. If you're not yet to that place of following him, he will reveal himself to you. Listen for his voice in his word, in his spirit, through people around you. He loves you that much. Freedom and glory are the power of meekness. God does miracles every day. And I can tell you, especially in these last few years as I've walked with Jesus, I, I, had, a, I had had some tough moments with some very tough churches. I've served in 15 different churches as a purposeful interim in some churches, some churches where other pastors didn't want to ever serve there. And I went in sometimes in the strength of my own strength, not in the meekness of the Holy Spirit. And things turned around, but I got the glory, not God. God wanted to teach me some things. And over the last few years, especially with Celebrate Recovery, he's been teaching me about walking in submission because it is all about him. It's not about us. It's only his strength that fills the glove. I'm going to ask Debbie to come up, and she's going to share a special gift. There's a whole section of the sermon notes that I didn't even cover, but you can you can go and read them on your own, okay, um, about meekness, about practical ways through meekness. But get, Debbie's going to share a, a special gift with us.